what happened was just a couple fringe people just sort of doing what comes to them naturally. But because that tapped into this infrastructure that has been designed to attack the election, to undermine the results, it took off. The conspiracy machine has roared to life after the attack on Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Michael Lowinger. On this week's show, in Georgia, there are concerted efforts to purge the voter rolls. Do these people even exist? They're just names. I mean, you can't find them. Plus, a conservative elections director finds herself in the crosshairs of the big lie. These people want a revolution, but they want me to break the law to cause their revolution. If they want a revolution, they can break the law. It's all coming up after this. Hello, Michael Lowinger. Welcome to the top of the show. Thanks for having me, Brooke Gladstone. Do you know why we're here? I do, yes. I'm here to ask you a bunch of important questions, and uh, I want you to respond honestly. As I always do. Okay. Why are we here? We're here because it's that time of year when we have to ask our listeners... I'm sorry, my cat. One second. (laughs) We're here to once again ask our listeners to consider financially supporting on the media. Why? Because there are many people behind the scenes researching, coming up with ideas, editing things really, really fast doing all the smart media analysis stuff, and that is hard work that costs money. Why should they care? Our listeners? hmm Because I think we do a good job. I mean, think about the midterms, for instance. If the 2020 presidential election is any indication, our media ecosystem is going to be inundated in false information, disinformation. Journalism is time and resource intensive because anyone can just spout their opinion, do punditry, spread lies. But doing the kind of analysis that we do, doing the deep reporting that we do, is really hard. Okay, now you ask me, and let's see how it goes. Okay. Hey, Brooke, welcome to uh, On the Media, your own show. Oh, thank you very much, Michael Lowinger. I love being on your show. (laughs) Brooke, do you know why we're here? Yes, I do. It is fundraising time, and people are going to be importuned by us to give us some money so that we can continue to do the job we do. And why are we asking for money? Because we rely on the public. It's the most consistent form of support, as everybody knows, and because it's also a uniquely cool way of funding journalism. We are not persuadable by any large single funding source. It's a lot, a lot, a lot of individual people that enable us to maintain our independence and to provide what is a unique service on the media is uh, a show like no other, wouldn't you say? I agree, but I'd like to know why you think our show is unique and why you think our show needs this membership support. Well... We're both reporters for the program, and we know how important it is to be the listener's surrogate. I've heard so many shows where there are lots of interviews and everything feels staged, like it's not happening for real in the moment. The 
people asking the questions are rarely surprised. We're surprised all the time. We take those nuggets of information that haven't been overly processed, and then we put it through the the (laughs) on-the-media extruder and figure out what it is that we've learned, which is why what we offer on the program sounds different from almost any other place. Why now, Brooke? Why November 2022? (laughs) Right. Okay. Fair enough. Look, this spot is going to be attached to two programs, one about voter suppression and one about libraries. Both issues have been under escalating pressure and inspire escalating concerns. These are vital issues, the national level and the local level coalesce when it comes to voting. And people find in their libraries, school boards, and city councils a place where they can really engage. America's changing so fast. And we try very hard to remind people about how the systems are changing and how democracy may change as well. Another thing we do is our take. We examine the stories that we tell ourselves, whether it comes through the media or through our culture, our politics, our religion, and then we examine those stories and see if they always hold water. Let me ask you a question. Sure. How much do you think listeners should give to support this show? I I, I hope whoever's listening thinks in their mind about how much they listen to this show and what it's meant to them over the past month, year, lifetime as a listener, and try to put a number to the time that you've spent with us. We're asking listeners to donate $8 a month, become a sustaining member, and rest assured knowing that you are supporting rigorous, original journalism at a time when it's needed most. After more than 20 years of doing this show, we are still growing, still thinking in new ways. And $8 a month, if you can afford it, would be really significant. So please consider going to onthemedia.org slash donate to help us out and to keep our show on the air. Yeah, onthemedia.org slash donate. And thanks very much. Thanks. Enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Micah Lowinger. I'm helping out on this week's show, and later in the hour, you'll hear about my trip to Georgia, where I went to investigate how the big lie is shaping next week's elections. But first... We begin tonight with the brutal attack on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi. Investigators say David DePop had zip ties and duct tape when he broke into Pelosi's home on Friday. He told police he wanted to hold the speaker hostage and, quote, 
break her kneecaps. Our officers observed Mr. Pelosi and the suspect both holding a hammer. The suspect pulled the hammer away from Mr. Pelosi and violently assaulted him with it. Within hours of the break-in, the internet was seething with false narratives and ludicrous lies. Like, the attacker and his victim were both in underwear. Or there were two hammers. And there was broken glass outside the shattered window. And worst of all, it was a sexual rendezvous gone wrong. On Fox News, though, at least initially, the story was covered as just another example of the perceived left-wing weakness on crime. In other words, business as usual. Crime does not discriminate. Rich or poor, black or white, city, suburbs. It's the number one issue in this country. And I think what Democrats need to do, this is a wake-up call. Because what happened to Paul Pelosi is not so unusual anymore. Attacks by the mentally ill homeless, they're a feature of life in our cities. In fact, of every part of this country controlled by the Democratic Party. But according to Angelo Carasone, president and CEO of Media Matters, a liberal watchdog organization that monitors right-wing media, the focus on crime didn't last long. Within 48 hours, just two days, Fox changed from their large crime narrative to a conspiracy theory that you shouldn't believe that this was an actual attack that was motivated by politics. Carasone says that while there are daily outrages in the right-wing media, the Pelosi attack story is one we should pay attention to. He told me how it all started. Shortly after the attack, there was a local TV affiliate in California that had reported that the assailant was wearing only their underwear. That report was quickly retracted, and it was not confirmed by another outlet, but it, it did exist in print for a really short period of time. That one nugget started to then percolate across parts of the online fever swamp. So that's message boards, Telegram, some other messaging apps, you know, True Social, Parler. They start to see the ground that something is off here. And Paul Pelosi was wearing pajamas. So the image right. of a man attacking him in his underwear and the man being attacked, you know, basically in his PJs, that kind of indicated what? They took the reports about the... Paul Pelosi's call to 911, where he described the attacker as a friend, because he, remember, he's in the bathroom, he's trying to be very cryptic about it, and he was speaking in code to the 911 dispatcher in hopes that they would send law enforcement over. People picked up on that and pointed to the fact that that was another thread of evidence that they had known each other, that they had a, had a friendship because he described him as a friend. What they really made the argument about is that it was a a grinder hookup gone awry, that they had had previous interactions and a history. So all of those different threads start to then get seeded around the ground within the first few hours of this happening. And then you get publications like the Santa Monica Observer or people like Dinesh D'Souza who take these ideas that are percolating out there and turn them into stories. You know, you can't share a bunch of random posts from a message board thread. Fox News can't do anything with that. You can't echo various threads. But what you can echo is a story. Tell me how Fox News, people like Tucker Carlson, came to cover the event. What Tucker did was reflect back to his audience the stuff that had already reached pretty heavy scale within the larger right-wing media. He didn't fact-check it. He didn't push back on it. Local KTVU investigative reporter Evan Cernofsky, for example, initially reported that DePappi was, quote, found in underwear when police arrived. Today, Cernofsky made a specific point of retracting that claim. Well, okay, fair enough. But you can't blame people watching all of this at home for thinking that maybe there's something weird going on here. He became 
a validator for the very idea that there was more here to the story, which in turn encourages people or it gives them permission structure to ignore the facts and to latch on to one of these alternative conspiracy theories. And why I think it matters is that Fox News accepted the election results in 2020 for 10 days before they turned on a dime and did 774 segments over the following two weeks in late November, attacking the election results, undermining them, concocting conspiracy theories about Dominion and a whole range of other voting machines and results. And the reason why they made that turn is because they couldn't sustain not being in that position anymore. Their audience had been saturated with these lies and these ideas. And at some point, because they were getting so much pressure from their own audience to talk about what had become their reality, they started to engage in it. They started to echo back to their audience the very thing that they wanted. It took 10 days the last time for them to do that. Tucker, he had less than 48 hours. And then there was Elon Musk, who questioned the facts of the story through his own Twitter account by retweeting an article from the Santa Monica Observer titled, quote, The Awful Truth. Paul Pelosi was drunk again and in a dispute with a male prostitute early Friday morning. He's citing that article because he himself is just a creature of this consumption pipeline. That was one of the most traffic articles in right-wing circles in the 20 hours or so before he shared it. Even though he took that down, it doesn't matter because now the predominant narrative on Fox News is there's no security. Where are the cameras? Where's the body cam video? Where's the security video? Police came to the door. Someone else opened the door. Who opened the door? Uh, the glass appears to be broken outward. What about That's the broken another. glass? What was that about? It doesn't add up. Yeah. And All point. these basic things that they can keep to perpetuating the idea that maybe there's much more to that story than people want to believe. What about Republican politicians? I mean, they know Nancy Pelosi. I mean, as members of Congress, they must understand the gravity of somebody breaking into the home of one of their colleagues, what have they said? They've either not said anything super contradictory to the conspiracy theories or they've engaged in them. And that, to me, it's not one in the same, but they're certainly closer than just getting out there and saying this is absolutely horrible and reinforcing the truth. But they can't because it's politically sensitive. Just like with election denial, the echo chamber, the broader right-wing media is able to saturate the audience either with total misinformation and fabrications or extremism or hop them up on something that their own base gets consumed by it. And that puts them in a position to either be, you know, the next Liz Cheney, right? Or to at best just say nothing and hope that nobody pressures you into endorsing the lie or the conspiracy. And that is the best that we can hope for right now from a lot of them. And then you see some examples of the worst. Clay Higgins, who's a congressman, a member of the Homeland Security Committee, Republican member of Congress. One of the things that he did, for example, is he sent out this post where it was Nancy Pelosi with her hands on her forehead and the comment that he had that he made. It wasn't even like he was just posting him. He actually thought this up himself, which was let me read it. That moment you realize the nudist hippie male prostitute LSD guy was the reason your husband didn't make it to your fundraiser. Now, yeah, sure. He took it down after he posted it because he got pressure and the blowback. But I would say that this is where they're at these days, right? You know, they'll get just as much blowback if they were to go out there and say that this was actually just somebody that got radicalized 
One of the things that Fox News in particular, but the larger right-wing echo chamber does, is they say the reason why the media wants to claim this person is a conservative or right-leaning or was radicalized is because the second we validate that, they're going to tell us that we can't say this stuff anymore. They're going to crack down on us. They're going to come after us. So in a way, what they do to buttress their lies and their extremism is to then set up the conditions whereby if any Republican leader were to step up and say what is plainly true, that what they're actually then accused of is somehow giving ammunition or fuel to Democrats to then turn around and silence them. Part of me is kind of numb to this. Part of me is deeply shocked. And, and I just, in our editorial meeting, we were debating the question of whether or not this indicates something is getting worse, that no one is saying, hey, let's pump the brakes on these conspiracy theories because there's a human toll to this stuff. Are things getting worse? I'm with you on the fatigue and the numbness to it. That is a natural thing. It's called, you know, calluses. If you do the same work over and over again, your hands or the part you use tends to get callous. That's how we adapt. That's a part of living in this atmosphere right now where the stimulation and the intensity is so high. So I'm not surprised about the numbness, and I feel it too. What I would say, though, is that what happened with the Pelosi stuff was just a couple, you know, fringe people just sort of doing what comes to them naturally. But because that stuff tapped into that pretty well-running ecosystem and infrastructure right now, it took off. And this wasn't on purpose. This was just an accident. What happens when this infrastructure that has been optimized and designed specifically to do nothing but attack the election to undermine the results is operationalized after the vote. That, to me, is really what this is about. And so I am numb to the Paul Pelosi thing, too. I'm numb to a lot of the extremism, but I'm also mindful of the fact that what we're experiencing is just a little bit of an engine that is pretty much ready to roar. Angelo, thank you very much. Thank you. Angelo Carasone is the president and CEO of Media Matters. Coming up with the midterms just days away, all eyes are on Georgia. This is On the Media. On the Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/otm and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex, of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Michael Lowinger. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. Around the country, new laws are making it harder for people to vote. 
A 2018 Florida amendment restored the right to vote for many felons in Florida, but new video is raising questions, showing people with felony convictions being arrested by Governor Ron DeSantis' new Office of Election Crimes and Security. Take a look. Apparently, I, I guess you have a warrant? For what? I'm not it's sure. For voter stuff, man. Why are okay. y'all doing this now and, and this happened years ago? I don't know. Many of those arrests have since been overturned. Meanwhile, in Texas, there's Senate Bill 1, passed in September 2021. First, it puts a ban on drive through voting and brings an end to 24-hour voting. Early voting is now restricted to a window of 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. The bill also makes it illegal for the elections administrator to send mail ballot applications to anyone who hasn't requested one. And it creates new ID requirements for voting by mail. Voters will be asked to provide their full driver's license number on the ballot application and the envelope used to return their completed ballot. That information must match what is already on file in their voter record. And in Georgia, where voters may very well decide which party takes control of the Senate, the state's Republican legislature packed a bunch of hurdles into a law known locally as SB 202. In Georgia, Republicans passed a law that cuts the number of drop boxes in heavily populated areas, imposes new ID requirements to vote by mail, and makes it a crime to offer voters snacks or water while in line. Among the changes was a provision that has led to voters challenging the eligibility of other voters in their county. Prior to SB202, citizen challenges were rare. They came primarily from Republican operatives and do-gooder neighbors. This is based off of an election rule that was originally intended to be used for if your grandfather dies, so you inform the local board of elections so they can be removed from the voter rolls. This is Hampton Stahl, senior research specialist with Princeton's Bridging Divides Initiative Lab, where he focuses on Georgia. If his name and voice sound familiar, it's because I've worked with him before on other OTM stories, including our investigation into the use of Zello on January 6th. Hampton tipped me off to this part of SB202, which now explicitly allows, or perhaps encourages, citizens to challenge an unlimited number of voters. It has been such a ludicrous expansion of scale that really cannot be underscored enough. In a state that Biden won by less than 12,000 votes, there have been tens of thousands of challenges since the law was passed. I was fascinated by these voter challenges because of what they demonstrate about how the language and activism surrounding the big lie have evolved. From a cynical narrative exploited by politicians to a call to action for local activists. From a reactive conspiracy theory to a preemptive one. The problem in 2020 was that we tried to fix the problem after the votes have been cast and counted. We're trying to do it now ahead of the election. That's Matt Brainerd, a former Trump campaign aide who runs one of the organizations currently training activists to file challenges with their local election boards. He was on Steve Bannon's War Room podcast in October, calling on people to help remove names from the voter rolls. The idea being that dead people, people who've moved away, or so-called fake voters create an opportunity for fraud. We need everybody all over the registrars to make sure that these people cannot vote and these votes don't count. Georgia's 159 counties are more or less on their own with this stuff. State lawmakers have provided virtually no guidance on how to review and interpret the legality of challenges, many of which are said to be riddled with errors. In the lead-up to our first major election since these conspiracy theories went mainstream in the GOP, 
I was curious to see how and where this disinformation was having real-world effects. I just do a very small process myself. I'm an individual. It's totally nonpartisan. This is Eugene Williams. He's a middle-aged, semi-retired real estate agent and investor living in Cobb County. We met at the top of a hill in Maybury Park, a beautiful green space in an affluent Atlanta suburb. Williams has submitted about 300 challenges to his county's board of elections. All 300 are people he says he's never met. He sent letters to voters registered at an apartment complex and two college campuses, which he says bounced back, suggesting to him that these people might not be real. The same tactic, which voting rights advocates call voter caging, has been used by Republican politicians who have tried to block voters in 13 states. Do these people even exist? They're just names. I mean, you can't find them. I don't want to disenfranchise anyone that's legitimately able to vote. But by gosh, let's follow the laws. If you don't live here, you should not be on the voter rolls. Pure and simple. He says he's been interested in what he calls voter integrity for many years across several elections and that he believes there was election fraud in 2020. Online records show that he attended Zoom meetings hosted by a local right-wing group linked to some of the other challenges in Georgia. But Williams told me he learned how to investigate the voter rolls on his own. I'm working independently on this. Just 100% by yourself? Yeah, yeah. I just go in there in my office and pull this data up. Can you describe some of the research that you've done? Yeah, I start off with uh, what they call the National Change of Address List from the post office. People, when they move, they contact the post office to have their mail forwarded to their new location. Williams told me he would then compare these names against his county's voter rolls, which Georgia sells on the Secretary of State's website. Williams told me he focused mostly on people who moved to the Sunshine State. I see they've just recently registered to vote in Florida. I provide that information to the election board. How much time would you say you've spent looking into the voter eligibility challenges that you've submitted? Oh, I started in like June or July, so maybe 20 hours a week, somewhere in there. But it's a, it's a good bit of time. The Cobb County Board of Elections rejected Eugene Williams' voter challenges, saying that a list of names and addresses wasn't sufficient to prove the registrations were invalid. Election workers that I've spoken with say these out-of-state challenges are redundant because Georgia automatically removes people from the rolls who haven't voted after two election cycles. That, and if someone really tried to vote in Florida and Georgia, they'd be caught immediately. It's a federal felony, and... They're flagged by an interstate elections organization every time. Do you think these challengers are consciously trying to make it harder for people to vote in an effort to close the already very narrow gap between what might be perceived as a slight edge Democrats have over Republicans in the state? That's hard to know. I think it's, it's probably not something that's conscious. A lot of the narratives are sort of this like mutually reinforcing cycle of oh, there was fraud in the election, so we need to take action to remove that fraud. And by taking action, we're finding cases that we believe to be fraud, which is then reinforcing that first narrative, and it's this circle. Hampton and I dug into data provided to us by a nonpartisan group called All Voting is Local, which found that Eugene Williams was one of fewer than 40 activists across the state who've submitted over 75,000 challenges in the past year. And while Williams failed to convince his county board to remove voters from the rolls, 
other challengers have hit their mark. I couldn't wait till I was 18 to cast my first ballot. Ever since then, I've been voting. This is Major Gamaliel Warren Turner Sr. He's a 69-year-old Department of Defense contractor working at the Port Winini Navy base in Southern California. When he moved there in 2019, he chose not to register in California because he wanted to continue voting in Georgia, where he grew up, where he pays taxes. First thing that I did was to put in a change address to make sure that all my mail was received here and put in an absentee ballot request. During the early primaries, the local elections, no problem. Unbeknownst to Major Turner Sr., a conservative politician living in Muskogee County had challenged his eligibility 10 days before the 2021 runoff between Democrat Raphael Warnock and Republican Kelly Loeffler. After his absentee ballot never showed up in the mail, he called the Muskogee Board of Elections. He said, Mr. Turner, we have a problem. I said, what's that? He said, you've been challenged. I said, what does that mean? I don't know. She said, I don't know. I do not know. And that is when we realized down in Muskogee County that approximately 3,000 of us have been challenged. Simply that I had put in a change of address at the post office. That was the only reason for the challenge. Who challenged you? In my case, it was a resident of Muskogee County that just so happens to be the head of the Republican Party in Muskogee County. What's his name? Austin. Austin what? I don't remember it right off the bat. I've tried to erase him out of my thought process. Why, why, do you, why are you trying to erase him out of your thought process? People of color, especially in my age group, that has seen and has gone through every possible thing that can be done to either steal our votes, scare us from voting, stop us from voting, convince us that our vote doesn't count. There is PTSD in people of color trying to vote. Major Gamaliel Warren Turner Sr. ended up suing the Muskogee Board of Elections. His story is featured prominently in a new documentary film titled Vigilante, Georgia's Vote Suppression Hitman. Ultimately, the court put a stay on his challenge, and he was able to vote for Raphael Warnock in the 2021 runoff. Raphael Warnock's middle name is Gamaliel. That's why I call it a Gamaliel thing. What, what is a Gamaliel thing? It's those things where you try hard and then opposition comes to try to stop you. But you already know that it's coming. You've already prayed on it and it's not able to hold you back. It's overcoming a foreseeable it's, obstacle. Yes. Is that your mantra? <gasps> yeah, that's my mantra. How many Gamaliel things would you say you've encountered in your life? Thousands. Thousands. Trying to vote in my local Fort Valley community with them running the train back and forth to make sure that we can't get across the train track to vote. Those are Gamaliel moments. They'd be called the N-word while I was in the military by my senior leadership and told me that I just didn't understand where my place was. Those are Gamaliel moments. To be denied housing when your peers are being shown houses in a particular neighborhood, uh, having to come back 25 years later and buy the house across the street because in the 70s, you weren't allowed to stay in that neighborhood. Those are Gamaliel moments. That's why when I look at adversity and I look at these obstacles in life, it's a Gamaliel thing. According to advocates and election workers that I spoke to, the majority of voters targeted recently by activists appear to be living in counties with high populations of people of color. 
But there's another group uniquely vulnerable to these challenges. I got addicted at midnight, New Year's Eve, December 31st. I lost everything I owned and I became homeless. So This is Barbara Helm. She showed up during early voting on October 17th, hoping to vote for Democratic lawmakers. It's a big ticket item with the Supreme Court in Roe versus Wade. But when she arrived at her polling place, an election worker told her she wouldn't be able to vote this time because her eligibility had been challenged. I was very angry because I didn't even know it was possible to block a voter. But she told me the name of the first guy that blocked me was Frank Snyder back in March. She said, I've been blocked again in May and then again in June. These challengers likely flagged her name in the voter rolls because she was registered to a commercial address, not a residential address. I can see how that would seem suspicious if you're looking for evidence of so-called phantom voters, but with a bit of context, it's not suspicious at all. For one, the commercial address was a post office. Sometime before I was evicted, I went down there and did a legal address change there. According to the American Civil Liberties Union of Georgia, it's legal for an unhoused person in the state to register to vote at an empty lot or a street corner or wherever they lay their head. They told me the Forsyth County Board of Elections should have done more to investigate whether this was a voter experiencing homelessness before voting to remove her. Just today, a homeless woman was denied the right to vote in Forsyth County. This is Democratic Georgia gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams speaking in her first debate against Republican Governor Brian Kemp. She did not receive a provisional ballot because she had been challenged. Did you know that Stacey Abrams referenced you in her debate? I did. I was told that by my Democratic Party. How how did you feel about that? That your story was used by the Democrats? I was actually glad that she brought that up, especially since it's a problem here in the county I live in and in the state of Georgia. This is a major threat to people's ability to fully participate in this democracy. This is Daley Loman-Smith, one of two Democrats and the chair of the five-person Board of Registration and Elections in DeKalb County. During the day, she works as senior vice president of a company called GovHR, but she's been involved in local elections for years. She and the board have rejected every challenge brought by activists. According to the data we got from All Voting is Local, of the roughly 75,000 voters challenged in Georgia over the past year, roughly 2,000 challenges have been successful, and processing these challenges has strained local election offices. SB202 requires us to grant a hearing for them within 10 days of receiving those challenges. Our staff thankfully get paid not nearly as much as they deserve to get paid, but they are employees, board members who are required to jump when somebody shows up with challenges are not paid. We have jobs, we have families and other responsibilities. How many hours would you say you've spent on your face right now? (laughs) That was the most extreme eye roll I think I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I I don't know if I could quantify. I'd have to really sit down and think about how many hours we have collectively spent on this. Another election worker in Gwinnett County told me his team spent 1,920 hours in September processing 22,000 challenges, all of which were ultimately thrown out. If you live in Georgia, that's your tax dollars right there. And here's the kicker. SB202 includes a rule that allows the state's Republican legislature to replace the entire board if they're deemed to be underperforming. So rejecting the challenges could very well have repercussions. 
For Loman Smith, SB202 is a reminder of how her family history informs her work today. What I'm left with in this process is the humbling realization that I am once again on the front lines of a fight that my grandfather fought before I was ever born. We should not be relitigating people's access to the ballot in the 21st century in this country. Every time African-Americans expanded their political voice, what you saw was a reaction by white conservatives to constrain or to otherwise limit this growing black political activity. Richard Doner is a professor emeritus of political science at Emory University. He recently wrote a piece for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution titled, Voter Challenges Have Troubling History in Georgia. He says SB202 reminds him of a disenfranchisement effort that began in Georgia in the 1940s when black political participation surged after the state lowered the voting age to 18. Black voter registration rose from about 20,000 in Georgia in 1940 to around 125,000, which was 18 percent of the population in 1946. At that time, this is before the political realignment following the Civil Rights Act in the 1960s, the ideologies of the Democratic and Republican parties were the reverse of what they are now. The Democrats were the party of slavery in the South, and the introduction of black voters presented a threat. Especially to the leader of the Democratic Party, Eugene Talmadge, who was running for governor. My state, the sovereign state of Georgia, is the only state in the union that has never voted a Republican ticket. That's Talmadge speaking at the DNC in 1952, at a time when he had successfully taken over the party. The way he seized power, says Donor, was through the use of voter suppression tactics ahead of the 1946 governor's race. In Augusta and Savannah, thousands of black voters couldn't vote before the polls closed. There was also intimidation. There were cross burnings by the Klan, written threats to the black community. All of this is well documented. But the main thing that he did was mass purging. Shortly before the 1946 primaries, Talmadge launched a broad campaign to challenge and disqualify black voters. Writing in a political newspaper, The Statesman, Talmadge wrote, quote, If the white citizens of the state of Georgia will wake up, they can disqualify and mark off the voters list three-fourths of the Negro vote in this state, end quote. His campaign sent out thousands of forms to their supporters featuring a blank space where they could write in the name of a voter whose eligibility they wanted to challenge, along with justification for the challenge. In some cases, they did it based on the local judgment of, quote, good character and understanding of citizenship obligations. What does that mean? It means what they want it to mean. So an estimated 15 to 25,000 black voters were dropped from the rolls. And Talmadge won, despite the fact that his opponent won 16,000 more popular votes. The long shadow of this history is in the minds of voters and organizers who, despite the obstacles, have helped drive historic turnout during early voting in Georgia this year. I'm angry. Major Gamaliel Warren Turner Sr. I am angry, but I know what's happening. I wish others understood that this is serious. Their vote is serious. Their vote is powerful. 
you can take power from those that are in power and they don't want to give it up. So guess what? They are busy doing everything in the world they can to take your vote one way or the other. Coming up, Micah meets a conservative elections director going head to head with the big lie in Georgia. These people want a revolution, but they want me to break the law to cause their revolution. This is On the Media. On the Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/otm and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. This is on the media. I'm Brooke Gladstone and I'm Michael Lowinger. Before the break, we heard from some of the people I spoke to when I went to Georgia to report on how the repercussions of the big lie were playing out in the lead up to next week's elections. I discovered that conspiracy theories about election fraud in Georgia have made life really difficult for some election workers in counties that went for Democrats in 2020. But local officials in Republican areas have had their own issues. Enough is enough. We are not sitting up here any longer allowing anyone to belittle our office staff, our attorney, or us. It's wrong. You're listening to a Cherokee County Elections Board member addressing a group of right-wing activists on October 3rd. I discovered the audio, which appears to have been secretly recorded, because it was shared in a quote-unquote election integrity Facebook group. Last month was the breaking point for me. We will not be intimidated. We will not and cannot break election laws for you or anyone else. I wanted to figure out what was going on here, so I drove out to the Cherokee County Elections Office to meet with this woman. I'm Ann Dover. I'm the director of Cherokee County Elections. And how long have you been working here? I just had my 15-year anniversary. Wow, congratulations. You're a veteran. I'm afraid so. (laughs) When I met Ann, she was wearing huge golden cross earrings. We spoke in her office, which is decked out with American flags, vintage elections posters, and framed sheet music. I've got Amazing Grace over here on the wall. If you listen really carefully, you might be able to hear the gurgle of her aquarium, home to a red, white, and blue betta fish. So I'm a very patriotic person. I know, I'm impressed. She seems confident in her role as director, even though this is her first time in charge of a major election. I sort of got thrown into this position at the end of 2020 because our director and our assistant director, who were my dear friends, they had just had enough. 2020 was very, very tiring, stressful. Anne says that some people in Cherokee County, which is one of the most conservative counties in the Atlanta metropolitan area, have had a hard time with Trump's loss in 2020. She put up a sign in her office's lobby stating there was zero tolerance for profanity, verbal threats, or any act of violence. You can yell at me, and that's fine, but don't curse at me. And this summer, she got a troubling phone call. We received on our voicemail, someone called and said that 
you people should be dragged out in the streets and beaten. Uh, we did turn that over to the authorities. The FBI responded almost immediately. She says she's comfortable with the idea of defending herself if she had to. She keeps a rifle and a 9 millimeter handgun in her car, but there's an emotional toll to all of this, and some activists have gotten under her skin. They are very, very, very passionate people, and they're basically demanding that we do what they tell us to do. She didn't want to name names for fear that it might add to the tension, but she says some of the activists informally refer to themselves as the truth seekers and the Cherokee warriors. Many of them are associated with a statewide group called Voter GA. Well, we've been working on this issue for 20 years. We've built up a lot of support. Anne was cool with me reaching out to this man, Garland Favorito, the founder of Voter GA. I've got 40 years of IT experience, information technology, and then about 20 years of part-time research into electronic voting equipment. And I had read online that your group is affiliated with Michael Flynn. Is that true? Um, they've made like one donation to us. That's pretty much it. Okay. Can I ask for how much it was for? No, we don't discuss donors. I asked because former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, a well-known QAnon supporter, reportedly encouraged Donald Trump to try to deploy the military to rerun the 2020 elections. According to the New York Times, Favorito is no stranger to fringe theories. He wrote a book questioning the cause of the September 11th attacks and has, quote, trafficked in unproven theories about the Kennedy assassination. Recently, Favorito and his followers have become focused on what they consider to be a vulnerability in Georgia's voting system, the QR codes. Let me explain this a little bit. Georgia uses Dominion voting machines. That's the company that sued Fox News and Trump allies for defamation. When you vote on these machines, you choose your candidates on a touchscreen. Georgia Public Broadcasting did an explainer on this. Once you have reviewed your choices, you will press a button that says print ballot. This will print out a piece of paper. That paper will have a QR code in the top left corner that contains all of the races and your selections. Then you scan the QR code using a different machine, which records the actual vote and saves the paper, which can be reviewed later. It's a security feature. The text on the paper ballot is designed to reassure voters that the choice selected on the machine will be what is scanned in through the QR code. But Garland isn't reassured, despite the multiple audits in Georgia and the failed court cases, which appear to debunk conspiracy theories about Dominion and election fraud. These QR codes are quick response codes, which you as a voter can't read. This is Favorito on a right-wing podcast in February. So this is particularly egregious because it's just a new way to have an unverifiable system uh, where the voter cannot really determine what's actually happening in, in an election. I mean, a QR code is a foreign language, and it's like nobody can understand it. Exactly. We call it whizzy. I know that it just takes one little line, one little algorithm. That's all it takes. These are some of the complaints that local activists have brought before the Cherokee Board of Commissioners, which, unlike Andover's Board of Election meetings, are filmed and posted online. So even if an unreadable QR code was legal, which it is not, it is definitely able to be changed and therefore corrupt the results of an election. If we have machines in November, I'm not voting. And I don't think I'm alone. And I hope that that matters to you. I want it to bother you. I want it to bother every elected official, 
If I have to vote, I'm I try to be very understanding of their concerns. I've written letters to our local legislators. I wrote a letter in June asking them to consider removing the QR code because we do have a number of Cherokee County citizens that do not like that QR code. Do you believe there was election fraud in 2020? I do not believe there was election fraud in Cherokee County. You can see the results of that on the Secretary of State's website. I feel like everything is great here in Cherokee County because I was here, I worked it, I lived it, I did it. You can ask Garland about Cherokee County. He came to our audit. He's been very complimentary of Cherokee County. But it's possible that some people like in his, his crew are less trustful. Exactly. Yeah. They say they want transparency. I don't know how much more transparent that we can be. We sat and we talked. They had pages of questions. We answered every one of their questions. We've answered every open records request possible. Misinformation is rampant. Whatever it is, they read it and they believe it, no matter what. And that's dangerous, very dangerous. It seems like a certain kind of misinformation is like falling on the shoulders of people like you. Mm. Yes, yes, I'm afraid so. Anne has found herself watching Garland Favorito's live stream, an online watering hole that draws in some of the familiar local activists. Just so I could see what we were going to be hit with. They are a group that says we are we the people. And I understand that I'm a very patriotic person. My husband was in the military. He was a police officer. I'm your grassroots patriotic person, but I'm not going to break the law. I'm assuming that many of the people who are coming after you mm-hmm. are also voting the same way as you. I mean, you probably agree on most things. Is that fair to say? It is fair to say. How does that feel? Mm, it's hard to understand. I'm not here to throw an election. You said they're asking you to break the law. What is it they're advocating for? The main thing is they want us to count the ballots on election night at the polling locations. For the coming election, if the machines are still used, then the ballots should be hand counted immediately after the polls closed and before they are sealed for storage. Because they're fearful that after they leave the polling location, that something's going to happen. Ann says she's tried to explain that counting the ballots by hand would take all night and that the polling places have to close after voting is done, that there's no budget for this kind of thing, and that it's illegal. Ann says that they've offered multiple times to assemble a group of volunteers to count the ballots themselves if she'd just let them. We can't just have a group of people come in, throw ballots out on the folded table, and start counting the races. We have to protect the ballots. I can't do anything about what they want me to do. And neither can our board and neither can our board of commissioners. Anne may present herself as powerless in this situation, but that's not quite right. She's using her authority to prevent a breakdown in the election process. This is a concern all around the country that experts are seeing local election officials come under this great pressure to give access to voting systems, machines, and documents that are usually tightly guarded. This is Emma Brown, an investigative reporter with The Washington Post. Her latest piece is about another election official in Georgia named Misty Hampton, who appears to have allowed things to get way out of hand. It really begins shortly after... Election Day in 2020. There was a meeting of the County Board of Elections in Coffee County. It's a rural county that went for Trump. He won in a landslide there. 
So the County Board of Elections meets and the County Elections Supervisor, Misty Hampton, who's basically in charge of the day-to-day running of the election, tells the board that it's possible to very easily flip votes from one candidate to another using a function of the Dominion machines. Here's a viral video from December 2020 of Misty Hampton handling ballots and showcasing what she considered to be the vulnerability. Well, when you look at it, it's tore, so we're going to set it to the side because we're going to have to look at it with a review panel. What she was talking about was something called adjudication, and it's for mail ballots. So, you know, if you fill out your mail ballot and you do a sloppy job, you have some stray marks on your ballot, or maybe somebody voted for two candidates instead of one, or something like that. The machine can't read that. It doesn't know how to count your vote. So then it goes to humans, a bipartisan panel of people look at that, they decide if they can agree on the voter's intent, then they tell the computer how to mark it. And her claim was, look, I can just go in there and tell the computer to count that vote however I want. So you made a vote for someone where someone did not vote? I did, didn't I? She was essentially saying, you know, I didn't do this, but a rogue election worker somewhere else could have done it. So had that actually happened in Georgia, it should have been caught in the statewide recount of all the ballots that was done in mid-November. And instead, that recount found that the machines had essentially tabulated accurately. This wasn't evidence of election fraud. But in late 2020, the Trump campaign was looking for anything that might seem like evidence. They got in touch with Missy Hampton. On January 7th, the day after the attack on the Capitol, this group of forensics experts from a data forensics firm in Atlanta, along with Republican activists and businessmen, came to Coffee County and Misty Hampton allowed them into her office. Surveillance video from January 2021 showed unauthorized people in a secure area of Coffee County's election office, where they appeared to be accessing election equipment and computers. They were allowed to copy almost every component of Coffee County's voting system that day. All of that has come to light in court records and in the surveillance video I mentioned and in other records and documents. They were working under a contract with Sidney Powell, who's the pro-Trump lawyer who had made many false claims about widespread fraud in the election in the media and also in court in lawsuits that were tossed. She paid, uh, through her nonprofit, $26,000 to these folks to do this work. They then uploaded it onto the Internet, password-protected site where it was downloaded by several election deniers around the country. What happened in Coffee County is just one of several alleged breaches that are now under a criminal investigation around the country. Back in Cherokee County, Ann Dover has refused to give in to the illegal demands of local activists. And she's paid a price for standing up for the law. These people want a revolution, but they want me to break the law to cause their revolution. If they want a revolution, they can break the law. I'm not going to. When somebody says, I'm going to pray for you, that you'll have a change of heart. And I'm like, my heart's fine because I'm following the law. I mean, we're all Christians in this office. We we pray together. We pray before our meals when we go to lunch. When we're having extra tough days, we'll gather and have prayer. What bothers me is that they do it in the name of Christ. But then you exit the meeting and you get to the parking lot and people start yelling at you. What have they yelled? We have a combat war veteran here that works for us. 
and he was yelled at, you should be hung for treason. He's a big fella, big heart, great guy. And it was very hurtful to all of us because he fought for our country. I'm sorry for what you've gone through. I mean, it sounds very painful. It, it's very upsetting. I have been at my grandson's ball game and somebody recognized me. What did they do? They whisper. I could hear them saying, she's the director at the elections office. <laughs> it's like we actually made shirts to Cherokee County elections serving with kindness and integrity. We don't even wear them anymore. Because it causes too much attention, you know, and we don't really want people to know we're elections workers. I don't think that you're the only election worker in this state who has experienced abuse. Oh, absolutely not. It's definitely not a Cherokee County problem. It's a Georgia problem. It really is. Why Georgia? Because I don't believe the results of 2020. Somebody has to lose an election. There is a winner and there is a loser. It's been that way all through history. You have to accept who wins and be a gracious loser. We joke and say 2020 is never going to go away. It's got to be put behind us. A lot of Republicans won't agree with me on that, but we got to move forward. I think it's fair to say that this isn't what Ann Dover signed up for when she took her first job at the Cherokee County Elections Office 15 years ago. She's struggled as of late, but she has no intention of retiring early. An investigator with the state, he said to me, it's not your job to worry about all of this stuff that they're worrying about with the machines. You can't change that. That's not your job. And I really have appreciated that comment because it keeps me focused on, I need to do my job, and that's to run elections. We have a lot of nice Cherokee County citizens, and I would say they probably outweigh the bad, but the bad are so bad sometimes that you forget the good, like the kid that's voting for the first time or the 100-year-old lady that did her best to come in and vote in person. The senior citizens that call here and want to vote by mail and can you help me over the phone, there are so many people like that that appreciate us. So I try to remain focused on that. Anne became director after her predecessor quit. The New York Times found that in 14 Ohio counties, one in four elections directors or deputy auditors resigned from their posts after the 2020 race. There was a similar count in Kansas and in Pennsylvania. And when mistrust and tense working conditions, powered by disinformation, push out the next wave of officials, who will be left to run our democracy at the county level? Will they be Andovers, or will they be Misty Hamptons? And that's the show. On the Media is produced by Micah Lowinger, Eloise Blondio, Molly Schwartz, Rebecca Clark Callender, Candice Wong, and Suzanne Gaber, with help from Tammy George. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. <laughs> <laughs>